we have much to be joyful for uh, this time of year and really every day. Did you know that in the Bible, the command or the instruction that we are given far more than any other command. In fact, it is instructed to us over 900 times from Genesis through Revelation is the instruction and the command to rejoice and be joyful. Isn't that amazing? The, ne- the command that actually occurs, the next most, occurs just around 300 times. Anybody know what it is? Do not fear. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Rejoice! Rejoice, friends. And we have great reason to rejoice. First John 5, chapter 11. Let's say it together. It's our memory verse for this month. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. 1 John 5, 21. Wow. Amazing. And uh, really, we are moving, continuing to move through our Advent series uh, this time of year. Today, we are talking about joy. And um, I, I'm giving a, oh, I'm being told my mic is not on. Wow. Good. Well, there we go. Now it's on. Is it on? It's not on. That's probably, oh, no, that box is on. Let me double check here. It says it's on. I don't know. Can you all hear me? Well, if you can hear me, then we're good to go. <laughs> so we are talking about joy uh, today. This is our third uh, study in our Advent series. We started with hope. We last week talked about peace. This week we are talking about joy. And I want to begin this morning with a premise that we're going to kind of unite around and start with. Joy is a gift that should come to characterize The lives of those who have received and been transformed by the good news of Jesus. People who inhabit and follow Jesus should come to be seen and known as joy-filled people. And so I was thinking about this, and I've often, this happens uh, probably more often than not uh, through the course of the week. Uh, The Lord puts an opportunity in my life to say, uh, practice what you're going to preach on Sunday morning. And so last night we had gone out of our house, uh, locked the doors, jumped in the van to prepare to go to a dear friend's house of ours and to visit with their family. And when we got in the van, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, who has the keys? No one had the keys. The keys were in the house. The doors were locked. We have no garage door opener. The keypad on our garage door's battery's dead. So, the Lord said, are you going to practice being a joy-filled person right now? It was hard. I was on a ladder. It was windy. A bedroom window got broken. (laughs) But we got in the house. (laughs) And we made it to our friend's house. And as we got back into the van after the ordeal and thanked the Lord for wonderful neighbors who let us borrow a ladder, uh, my daughter said to me, "Uh, Dad, now you'll have a great story to tell tomorrow morning before the (laughs) sermon. (laughs) 
So uh, there you go, Bailey. That one was for you. <laughs> joy, joy, joy. I got to be honest with you. It was windy last night. I was up on a ladder, very high, uh, trying to get into the window in our house, and I was not uh, thinking joy-filled thoughts in that moment. But today, we are going to be exploring some joy-filled thoughts, and we are going to be really looking at and unpacking five questions related to the joy of Jesus, our Messiah. And these are the five questions we want to look at today. How is the gift of Jesus wrapped up in the promise of joy? What were the gloomy circumstances that Jesus was born into? Where does joy spring forth in the birth narrative of Jesus? What did Jesus teach about joy? And how did his ministry come to exemplify joy? And then as we look unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, how might we inhabit similar attitudes and behaviors so that we might be seen and known as joy-filled people? So before we begin to address and unpack those questions, let's go before the Lord and ask him to help us in our time of study. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the day-to-day -day events that you bring into our lives to help us practice the uh, characteristics that you are teaching us to live by. And certainly this time of year as we look to uh, the ideals that we can have in your son Jesus, ideals such as hope and peace and joy and love and life, uh, you have given us so many opportunities every day to uh, live out and to abide in and inhabit the postures of your son Jesus who lived these ideals out perfectly and lived without sin before us uh, in a way that uh, is very motivating to us as we look at his example. And yet we know, Father, that, that he was not born into a world that was not without adversity. Uh, indeed, our Savior was born into uh, a world of difficulty, a world of gloom, and yet he was able to uh, live in such a way that was honoring and pleasing to you. And so I pray as we go into uh, your word today that you would instruct us and inform us from it, that we might learn from it and from the examples of Jesus, and we might go from here excited and motivated uh, to live out the same patterns uh, that he was living. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we begin with this idea of how the gift of Jesus is wrapped up in the promise of joy. And really to begin to explore and unpack this question, we want to jump back in to the Old Testament. And we want to together look at a few of the prophecies that were very important as they related to Jesus' birth. So we start in Isaiah chapter 7. These are going to be very familiar to you. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Isaiah, he is writing to the people of Judah. And uh, he's, he's writing at a time where there's some good going on and there's also some very difficult going on. Uh, in Judah's uh, area at the time. And one of the primary messages to the people of Judah is that God was not going to allow their sin to go unpunished. 
And Isaiah begins at the beginning of his book to speak of God's judgment as a consuming fire. And he talks about the enemies of Judah that are actually going to be allowed to come in and to overtake the people as part of God's judgment. And throughout the text, and much throughout Old Testament, Israel and Judah, both the divided and the united nations of God's people, they're depicted as women. One who uh, is crushed and tormented and oppressed and persecuted by her surrounding nations. And in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he actually compares Israel to this beautiful vineyard that's going to be trampled all over by her enemies. Yet, in the midst of her abuse and her torment, God, in his goodness and his compassion and his grace and his mercy, will bring forth salvation by the way of a son that would be born by a virgin. And this son would come to be named and defined and identified as God with us. Now hold on to that as we press into Isaiah chapter 9. This is a chapter of Isaiah that's very near to our hearts and our minds in this season. And rightfully so. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 9. But there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its... What? Joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So those of Israel, those, those folks who were sputtering about in gloom and in anguish and in darkness, there's a promise that they're going to see a great light. And verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9 is filled with imagery that carries us into the New Testament gospel, specifically of John chapter 1. And we see contrast between contempt and glory, light and dark. The light that comes is going to deliver or bring hope to the people. But in verse 3, we find that exceeding joy will accompany this light that was going to shine in the darkness. And not only is it going to increase the joy of the people, but we're also going to later discover that the light of the Messiah will create faith. It's going to motivate gratitude. And it's very interesting in verse 3, he's going to be available to all the nations. And this is good news. And it should be received with great joy. Because God is promising that his salvation is going to be available to all who believe and receive it. The joy of abundant life to be divided among the nations as an army would divide the spoil after a military victory. But the spoil that is provided in God's gift of salvation will never run out. 
When the spoil's divided in the military victory, eventually the spoil runs out. It comes to an end. But when the spoil is divided among the nations, God gives in abundance. All of the nations invited in to a relationship with Christ. Isaiah's prophecy continues to talk about the life of this child, eventually prophesying about his death, his resurrection, and even his future eternal kingdom. And so after Isaiah writes, almost 300 years pass on. And Judah continues on this trajectory where they rise up, but then eventually fall to one of their surrounding enemies. And along comes another prophet whose name is Zechariah. And Zechariah's name literally means God remembers. And he's considered a minor prophet, but his prophecy is the second largest prophecy of all the minor prophets. He's also the minor prophet that has the most to say about this Messiah who God was sending to save his people. So Zechariah writes during exile. He's writing about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. He's writing during the reign of Darius the Great. And God's speaking through Zechariah to help his people remember the great hope and the great joy that has been set before them. Look at these words in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Again, the idea of joy. Sing and what? Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come. And what will he do? Dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations, there it is again, shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Zechariah, again, is picking up on this concept of God coming and dwelling in the midst of his people, repeating it multiple times in just these two verses. And so this promised son would be sent. He would save the people from their sins. And this would be reason and cause for great joy, not only among the people of Israel, but for great joy among all the nations. And so... 500 years later, approximately, following what was known as 300 years of prophetic silence, where the voice of God had not been heard among the people, a virgin conceives. And she travels to Bethlehem for an annual census. And while she is there with her husband, she gives birth to a child. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament, first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 breaks this silence between the Testaments, and it does so in a rather inconspicuous way. As we open up the narrative of Matthew, his gospel, to the first chapter, we're confronted with a genealogy. Uh, It's a writing, and it's intentionally been placed there so that we, the readers, will see that Jesus' earthly father, who was Joseph, was indeed a part of the line of David. This is highlighted very clearly in verse 20. Take a look down at verse 20, and we'll look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. 
Joseph, son of who? What does it say there? Son of who? Son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the son who would be born would be the son that was promised long ago, the one who would come forth from the line of David, the king, who would reign on the eternal throne, whose kingdom would be established in perpetuity. The end of the chapter shines light on the fulfillment of the prophecy in the birth of this son. Look at verses 22, 23, 24, and 25. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And with this, we are invited into the text to further explore the life of this son of promise. The one who was to be known as Emmanuel, God with us. So what were the gloomy circumstances that this Messiah, that Jesus, was actually born into? All of the joy and all of the gladness that was to accompany this birth and yet were reminded of the realities that we briefly explored last week as the New Testament opens. The people of God are dwelling in a time of relative peace, but it's not ideal peace, right? Reflecting on the quote from last week, we remember how one historian actually described this piece. He described it as an absence of war because it was the rare situation which existed when all the opponents of Rome had been beaten down and lost the ability to resist. And we said last week that didn't sound very peaceful, at least not like true shalom, right? Living within the Roman Empire as a beaten down opponent, who had lost the ability to uh, resist, were the people of God, known at the time as the Jewish people. And governing over, lording over, ruling over the Jewish people of his day was a man who was titled as the king of the Jews. His name was King Herod. He was vile. He was a Herodian. And while Caesar Augustus was considered the king of Rome, Herod had politically advantaged himself to be considered as king of the Jews. Now, we want to talk a little bit about Herod, but before we do that, I want to ask a question. When you think about rage, when you think about hostility, when you think about anger, what color comes to your mind? Red. Red. Yes. When we think about rage, hostility, anger, red comes to your mind. Now, I want you to hold on to that color because later we're going to come back to it. What color are you holding on to? Red. Good. So Herod was not a good person at all. 
He was actually rather bitter. He was insecure. Historians describe him as a man who was depraved. His life had been marked by death and violence. And, and it really came early in his life where his father, uh, Antipater, was poisoned to death by assassins. And Antipater's uh, assassination, it, it stoked an outrage within Herod. And historians would later describe him uh, ruling as a madman. His, he personally takes it upon himself to uh, visibly and barbarically kill his father's assassins in public. Which began this reign of terror that was filled with murder and lies and death and raving lunacy. I mean, just to give you an idea of how mad King Herod was, he killed his wife, his own wife. Not only did he kill, kill his wife, but he was so suspicious of what was going on of her mother-in-law and the conspiracy that he believed they were plotting against him that he had his own mother-in-law executed as well. He killed his brothers because he feared that they would rise up against him. He murdered his own self-appointed governor. His name was Costo Barus. And he murdered him and, and had him executed when his wife Salome, who also appears in the narrative of John the Baptist, beheading, accused Costobarus of conspiracy against Herod. He executed 45 Hasmonean priests. It's even written that he either killed or orchestrated the deaths of two of his very own sons. He was a man who had proven himself through his leadership to be willing to do anything possible that he could to stay in power and to maintain his position of authority. And his rule, his reign, his leadership over the Jews as king of the Jews might cause us to assume a rather joyless circumstance for the people who were living under his authority. But we will soon come to see in the birth narrative of Jesus that joy is not dependent on the one who holds or wields the scepter or the sword on earth. Friends, friends, let me say this this morning. I think we already know this, but we should not place our joy and our source of joy should not be found in our political leaders. Okay? I don't think any of us in here are getting joy from them, but just in case you were today, not the right place, not the right place. True joy, true joy, as we will soon see, is found in the faithfulness of Yahweh, God, the covenant keeping God. And what we begin to see in this text is that very early on in Jesus's life, God is already using the birth of Messiah to draw all of the nations unto himself. Jesus's birth is so momentous. It's so enormous that it has actually even impacted the natural world in a way that's even causing the local and even far away scientists and astronomers to take notice of. Look at Matthew chapter 1, or chapter 2, sorry, verses 1 to 3. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star. How about that? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, we talk a lot about the wise men this time of year. And what we know is that these wise men, they would have been very wealthy, well-respected men among the people. Perhaps they were advisors to kings and rulers, but not really kings themselves. Sorry, I know we sing that song, we three kings. They weren't really kings. That's, that's okay. There's a lot of things that uh, we believe about the birth narrative of Jesus that kind of comes as tradition rather than necessarily out of the text. Because of their wealth and their notoriety, historians observe that these men often traveled in large military escorts. And there could have been more than three of them. The text doesn't demand three. We often assume three because of the gifts. But some traditions have as many uh, as 12. And, And typically we say, well, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. Yes, but there could be many types of gold gifts and Much incense and all of those things could have been brought as tribute to King Jesus. The nature of their message, though, what they had to say to King Herod was very troubling. And and it was because another king had been born. And this was very threatening to King Herod and his leadership. Verse 2, where is he who has been born? What do they say? Whoa. Big red flashing warning lights to King Herod, who very much loved his power. From Herod's difficult reality and difficult history and difficult rule over the people, we come to realize that if Herod is troubled and upset, that the people also have real reason to be troubled And upset. And Herod immediately begins to scheme. Look down at verses 4 to 8 of Matthew 2. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes, the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Does anyone in here think King Herod really wanted to worship him? That's good, because you're a wise person too then, right? God is, this is amazing what God's doing here. Isn't this beautiful? He is orchestrating this so that the people actually, even with Herod's malintent, where does he send the people? Where do they go? Where are the people going for instruction on where Jesus will be born? Where where do they go to find it? God's word. 
they have to go back into the prophecy and the Old Testament. So I don't know if this was his intention. It probably wasn't. But he sends all of his chief priests and scribes back to God. And it's the word of God is that give them direction and help orient them and move them to the place where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And Herod has bad intentions about how he wants to use this information. But look at how God is going before to protect. Verses 13 and 14. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to do what? To destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt. God is going before. He's preserving and he's protecting the lives of Joseph and Mary and Jesus from Herod's next desperate act, which is very devastating. Look in verse 16. Verses 16 to 18. This is horrible. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She's refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As we've said before, friends, Herod was a madman. He was a madman. And this is the clearest and strongest evidence that any of us would ever need. But there's also something else that's going on here. And it's something that's long connected to the history of Israel. The rage of Herod, we might say, had been brewing for centuries. Centuries. And perhaps, even unbeknownst to Herod himself, this heinous act was one final attempt to right a perceived wrong that had affected the Israelite people for much of their history. Now, what is the color that we're holding on to today? Red. Right. Red is the color that you'll forever hopefully associate with King Herod. And if you do that, you'll be rightfully associating it with him. Because King Herod was an Edomite. The Edomites came from the line of Esau, the brother of Jacob. When the days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, what color? Red. All his body like a hairy cloak. Beautiful description. We remember this account, right? This narrative. Jacob takes the birthright of Esau. And God's line of blessing comes through the line of Jacob, who was the younger brother rather than Esau. It's even said in the Bible in multiple locations, Jacob, I have loved Esau. I have hated this reality drove Esau crazy. 
and the Edomites and the Israelites, they were enemies through much of the Old Testament. In many ways, throughout history, to this point, the brothers had never stopped bickering and fighting. And so here is Herod attempting to steal Israel's promised birthright, robbing her of her joy and her crown, her Savior, Messiah, Jesus. The problem, though, for Herod is that God had determined it to be just as it was. And God did not send foolish men to Herod who could be easily tricked or deceived. Rather, God had sent wise men. So in the midst of all of this, where does joy spring forth? And before we see what brought the wise men joy, let's reflect on one more important prophecy from the book of Numbers, and we'll wrap this prophecy in to Matthew's narrative account. Very beautiful what's happening here, friends. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. What should come? A star. A star. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Now we stopped there last week. Look at verse 18. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. Isn't that beautiful? Israel is doing valiantly. We know who really is doing valiantly. It's the Lord working through his plan of salvation here. A star shining forth out of Jacob, Edom, and its defining feature, which was Mount Seir. Perhaps in our text today, King Herod, dispossessed, Israel will be victorious. There will be joy. Amen? From the pit of darkness springs forth a well of joy. So now back in Matthew chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10. Look at what brings the wise men joy. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, what? The star. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is not the first time, friends, is it, that God has used an astronomical event to guide his people to the promised land. He did this before, didn't he? A long time ago in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, a pillar of fire by night led the Hebrew people towards their land of promise. Now God is using the stars and moving chosen men into an audience with the light of the world. And I love that as the wise men listen to King Herod, being well-educated and learned people, they see right through his scheme. They're not tricked. 
And in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The wise men, though, they would not be the only group, nor would they be the first group to be moved to joy at the good news of Jesus' birth. We remember the account in Luke. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah. She was greeted by Elizabeth. And what happened? Who was in Elizabeth's tummy? John the Baptist. And what happened in that encounter? They jumped with joy, right, Helen? It was beautiful, wasn't it? It jumped with joy. Joy, even at their first encounter while still in the womb. Luke chapter 10, the angels come to the fields where there's shepherds watching over the flocks by night. And they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Wow, joy all over the birth narrative of Jesus. That which was promised in the Old Testament God is bringing forth in the birth of his son. And there's great rejoicing. There's joy. All is as it was supposed to be. And so what about Jesus? He's born. He doesn't stay a baby forever. He grows up. He's living his life. As he's ministering on earth, what's he teaching about joy? And how is he exemplifying joy in his life? Ministry And boy, we could spend an entire sermon on answering this question, but I don't want to start over this morning. And uh, next week we're talking about love, which is also a very important component. So I've included some scriptures for you to study at the end of your notes this week that might give a little bit more insight. But once again, we find this timely instruction from Jesus to his disciples. Last week, we talked about how Jesus instructed his disciples regarding peace towards the end of his life and ministry. This week, again, moving into the same location in John, John chapter 15, we're going to see Jesus teaching his disciples about what should characterize our lives as we inhabit or abide in him. Look at verses 10 and 11 of John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus reminds us that his joy can be our joy and that our joy is found in doing what we've been called by God to do. Namely, in the book of John, believe, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have salvation and life in his name. And once we believe to follow in the ways that he's instructed, loving God with all of our hearts and loving others as we love ourselves. But I love I love what Jesus does in the Gospels, because he doesn't ever just tell us what to do. What else is he doing? He's living it. He's showing us how to do it. And so it's it's so beautiful. His apostles, his early followers, the disciples, they pick up on this and they see Jesus exemplifying this concept of joy even on the cross. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? For the joy. Take that in for a second. For the joy that was set before him. Part of that joy was pleasing his father. Part of that joy was saving humanity. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And in humiliation, he was lifted and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus shows us that even in the most difficult circumstances of our lives, the hardest places where we might ever find ourselves, the most difficult spaces that we might ever be in, the contexts that are the hardest here on earth, there can still be joy. Remember, we didn't say that it's an attitude. It's more than that. We didn't say it's an emotion. It's more than that. Those things are wrapped up in this word. But at the beginning, we said joy is a what? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift that's packaged in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and given to all of those who believe in Jesus. And have a true and right relationship with God. Friends, that is what allows us to face the difficult circumstances of this world with joy. Jesus Christ is our joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we want to look unto him. We want to look unto his life. We want to see him as our real and true source of joy. And we want to learn from his attitudes. We want to learn from his behaviors and the postures he took among the people. Because that we believe that in looking unto Jesus and in following his example, that it would be pleasing for him to live in a similar manner that he lived. And so what can we learn from the life? Of Jesus. Jesus' greatest source of joy was found in his dependence on the Father. Friends, there are a lot of things in the world that are going to call for our dependence. A lot of things. A lot of things that we can depend on outside of God. But Jesus showed us in the example of his earthly ministry that his joy came in his dependence on on the father he depended on the father to do the work in and through him that he was given to do and the father worked and was glorified and jesus was satisfied in what the father was accomplishing through him in john chapter 5 jesus tells the religious leaders that the son can do nothing but what he sees the father doing in john chapter 8 he says i do nothing on my own authority but I speak just as the Father taught me. Again, in John chapter 10, he says that he and the Father are one. You see this dependence interwoven throughout his ministry. And before the cross, we see it again. We mentioned it last week, but it's worth mentioning again this week. Because Jesus mentions joy, too, in his priestly prayer in John chapter 17, 
immediately before the cross where he's showing his dependence on God by going to him in prayer before the cross. Jesus also found great joy in making God known to those who did not yet know him. This brought Jesus Joy, Luke chapter 15 perhaps communicates it no clearer. And I want to read an account from there to you because it's, it's just a beautiful testimony of this. By this time, a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently to his teaching. The Pharisees and the religious scholars, they were not pleased, not pleased at all. They growled. He takes in sinners. He eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their complaining and grumbling triggered Jesus to say this. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoicing. And when you got home, call your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I've found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. He followed that immediately with these words. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors celebrate with me. I've found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Jesus found joy in making God known to those who did not know him. Friends, this can bring us great joy. Wednesday night at prayer meeting, somebody, uh, uh, brought up a request, and it was a really insightful request. They mentioned that uh, as we drive around, we see all the lights, and our radio stations are on the radio stations, and we hear all the music, and we see all the symbolisms and the signs related to Christmas and the birth of Christ. And his request was simply that God would use those things to reveal himself to people and make himself known. And shouldn't that, doesn't that, Bring us joy when someone comes to know the Lord and comes to a relationship for the first time with Jesus. Does it not bring you great joy? It should bring us great joy. Seeing friends who we know, loved ones who we know, family members who we know being drawn into a relationship with God through Jesus. It brought Jesus joy, making God known. It should bring us joy when we make God known, when we teach and talk about Jesus to those that God has placed in our lives. Jesus found great joy in obedience to following God's commands. We see this throughout his ministry. But I think it's very interesting that when he left, we said this last week, he gave the Holy Spirit. That was a sign of peace. But as the Holy Spirit indwells the followers of Jesus, fruit is to be produced. And what is one of those fruits that's to be produced in our lives? Joy. The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Second one. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness. Yeah, all of those things. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. Part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our life is joy. And that's to come to characterize a piece of our lives. 
And finally, Jesus demonstrated that essential to our joy are postures of being broken and poured out for one another.